So now we'll move into the second part of dependent origination, which is moving from conditionality into the actual 12 links. Before we get into them, just to give a little uh, outline about these 12 links, um, the Buddha <clears throat> used the language and the concepts of his time so he could communicate with people. And so these 12 links are not, um, he didn't introduce vocabulary, he reorganized processes that people had contact with but were drawing different conclusions to. So he had access, he could only communicate within the concepts that were available at the time and rework them. Um, and put new, uh, slightly different interpretations of them. So all of these 12 links that are about to come up, you can find them in the <coughs> the um, discourse at the time around the um, spiritual traditions that pervaded India at the time. Um, there was a Brahmin caste and they performed um, a lot of ceremonies and those ceremonies would bend the future towards your welfare if you actually, if they did the ceremonies right. And they kept uh, you in line with the universe and they kept the universe in line with itself. Um, and so he drew upon the, uh, these concepts into describing how do we get here and actually how do we get into the condition that we find ourselves in. And so he asked this question at the time, he explores where does all this suffering come from? And he finds that it doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't arise on its own. It arises out of supportive conditions. And when, where does that realm come from? Where do those supportive conditions come? Do they arise on their own? Or are they also arising because of support, their own supporting conditions? And he keeps following this back until he finds out until he finds that uh, not seeing things clearly is the original condition down the bottom of, of it all. So we'll start to work through this. So the Buddha asks, <clears throat> why is there suffering? And the worst suffering that he sees around him is actual illness, uh, the aging process, which um, if you've been in developed countries, the aging process can be quite... Um, brutal and what it brings along with it because of modern medicine we've been able to like fend off some of that so but the aging process in developing countries traditional countries um, comes with a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort and then actually seeing people die so first link he says there is aging and death and this is an example of dukkha of suffering does it just arise on its own, or does it arise because of a previous set of conditions? And he says, aging and death arises because of birth. If you can remove birth, you remove aging and dying. Now these two things, we, as we were talking about earlier, we can understand actual birth, and then the actual aging and dying that comes along with it, or you can use a model here that's about 
taking birth into a solid type of identity and then suffering when that solid type of identity falls apart. So you fall in love with somebody, you're dating, and at some point you say to each other, we are now a committed couple, and you feel that I am-ness. You take identity as a couple. And then for one reason or another, someone ages and dies, uh, couples don't get along, somebody moves, there's a splitting there. If you, had, if you took a hard birth around that, that identity, when it changes, it will cause pain. If you took a wise relationship, a, a flexible, doesn't have to be weak, but it has to be wise. If there's wisdom in how you took birth psychologically into an identity, then when that changes, you don't necessarily suffer as much. So that's the two different models that are being engaged here. One is you could, we're going to look through these lengths as possible, actual lengths of aging and death and what causes them. The contemporary um, interpretation is to look at this more as a psychological model, taking psychological birth. Why am I psychologically suffering? Because I psychologically took birth and now the changes that are happening are causing stress. That's the psychological model. If that's so baffling that you can't continue, please raise your hand. And if I, well, if you raise your hand, I'll, <laughs> I'll start from the beginning. I just want to comment for people that don't know that this is actually 12 and then 11. Yeah, so we're working our way down. Oh, interesting. Let's see if we do this. Let's see if it reboots. Oh, maybe I bumped the um the Birth is the uh, underlying supportive conditions of aging and dying. And the Buddha asked, uh, where does birth come? Does it arise on its own? Or are there conditions that support birthing process? He said, there has to be a momentum preceding birth. There's a momentum leading into birth. There's some force of becoming. And so... Birth just doesn't happen on its own. It becomes a, um, it, it arises out of the supportive conditions 
of some movement towards taking birth. So before you actually, again, commit as a couple, there's something happening as people are drawn towards each other before that type of birth would happen. Before you accept a job, there's some <clears throat> something brewing in you before you commit and take psychological identity birth. Or before you actually um, take physical birth, there's some process moving you towards that. In the multiple life model, it's actually a yearning in a previous life. That type of yearning to become propels an actual birth. That's in the multiple life model. Does that have supportive conditions? It turns out that it's clinging. Does clinging arise on its own or does it um, flourish because of supportive conditions? They found out that craving is what propels clinging and clinging is what propels becoming. I'm attracted to something, I want it, I fixate in my mind. From that fixation in my mind is born the urge to take on an identity around that fixation. And that, what, that leads me into the actions of taking birth. So I'm feeling content, someone brings in brownies, I get distracted by them, can't wait for lunch, I see the brownies, I see the brownies, I'm craving them, and I see there's, I do a head count, there's more of you than there are brownies, <laughs> that makes me anxious, and I have to strategize, how am I, who's at the farthest away from the brownies, <laughs> going to beat all you to the brownies, and so I start like becoming my mind, like seeking a, a self-strategy, like I know what I'm going to do. Okay, I now have a plan. I'm going to put that plan to motion so I get to those brownies, so I get one before they all disappear. Yeah. That's the psychological version of this craving, fixation. Fixation begins to scan for a self-strategy around the fixation. And then that plan takes birth, that plan initiates. These same forces are what compel you to take another birth. What you have left over from this life that you're still fixated on and you're still seeking, that will propel you to take another birth. As my, <clears throat> it's interesting to watch my mind want to go back in time and do high school better rather than leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. You, you know, you survived it, you moved, on, you moved on, it's like, oh, but if I, only, if I knew then what I knew now, boy, there's so many things that are different. And my mind enjoys these fantasies. And it feels, in a sense, I'm just kind of like playing with time travel, and what if I had done this, what if I had done that. But it, every now and then, it actually turns into this sort of like, that would be really good if I could do that. Boy, if I could just, hmm. So there's a seeking to have a different experience than what I had. And that seeking model is enough to actually propel me to have to do high school again <laughs> if I were to take another birth. You know, trying to get it right rather than recognizing some people suffer less, some people suffer more. But it's a fantasy to think that there's a way through and not, uh, not suffer what we all suffer, um, that things arise and pass, that there's limited satisfaction in changing experiences. 
and there's no actual being to which this is all happening, it's actually craving that leads to clinging, but not someone who is craving. It's the, it's the energy of craving that's the feeding ground for fixating and clinging. And it's not that you end up clinging, but something in you begins to fixate, begins to grab, begins to... So you don't have to take it so personally, like, I am now clinging. If I say that, I'm taking ownership of it. I can just watch my own mind grip at some point. Again, sort of <clears throat> thinking back to high school and college, seeing somebody, feeling attracted to them, learning they were single, this possibility, and then seeing them fall in love with somebody. And then my mind says, ah, oh, I have to wait two years for that relationship to... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, two years, that's a long time, oh darn. But <clears throat> there's the... that could have been me craving and clinging, but really it was, when you get into it, it's an energy arising in you of discontent that's seeking, then begins to fixate, and then plans begin to happen, and we take ownership of it. But it's really just energies arising in us that crave. When you feel into it, there's just discontent arising in this system. I don't have to make it a noun, I am feeling discontent. It's like, there's discontent happening. Oh, it just fixated. Now there's fixation in my mind. Oh, this mind is now producing all these self-strategy possibilities. Okay, now it actually wants that one. It's now deciding I'm going to take birth in that direction. Oh, it's working out. Good, let's reify this. Like, oh, it's getting out of control. I can't control it. Oh, it's falling apart. Ah. So it's really just energies playing themselves out. But we call it our story, the story of me, the story of temple. But it's just stuff playing out through me, actually. That's more on the psychological level. It's also on the physical level. It's one of the ways that this teaching is a teaching of non-self, is that we think we are independent selves walking through a world making choices, but really things are, are happening. They're growing out of conditions, and they're growing out of the previous conditions, which is really the state of being you were in that led to the proliferation of that next expression of your being. Let's use that microphone. So this is something that I've always wondered about. Is that loud enough? Can people hear the microphone? About craving, because I experience that to be true, and I watch that, and I watch that in my own mind. And then there's always a voice that says, yes, I experience this to be true, and having the, the distance that creates the watcher that can see it gives incredible peace of mind. But there's another sort of step that I find myself going through, which is how, how there are things that I want to accomplish, and there are things that I want to... So, like, how do you not experience paralysis by knowing that, do, do you, I'm sure yeah. you know the question that I'm asking, but I find myself yeah. like straddling that, thinking yeah. like I have ambitions or I yeah. have what I, you know. Um, up your wisdom so that it actually can keep up with the power of what you're trying to navigate. So it's actually mindfulness and wisdom that keep you from being enchanted 
into thinking, I get to have this, I don't get to have this, I shouldn't have this. A lot of the I strategy comes from a not as wise approach. And so if you actually have a wise approach, the Buddha um, walked um, uh, one month to give his first teaching to his first five disciples. He had a type of compelling desire, but if he'd gotten there and they, they had disbanded, he would not then be distraught. So the trick is not to, one of the trainings is to, can you bring your, can, can you bring your desires down to zero and be content with breathing? Yes, I can. Now, from there, how do you want to behave in the world? Well, I'm just going to keep breathing. Great. And out of that heart that's now so freed of all its fatigues and resentments and, and unmissed yearnings, there actually grows this beautiful sense of compassion and generosity. And so you're sitting there practicing and a child is running by and you're enjoying it and the child trips and falls right in front of you. You reach over, you pick up that child, you interact with the world out of compassion, not out of, that's wrong, the child shouldn't have done it. You don't have to have reactivity to be responsive to the world. And as the heart begins to heal, it begins to care more, and it does a better job of caring and participating. But it doesn't have to get there by, um, by getting bound up in the system. And you learn to actually move within the system much more freely. So craving and desire are two different things. And so the word, I don't like, I don't like translating tanha as desire because there are too many beautiful desires that would get hurt if we just kept using desire for tanha. Craving actually comes from a closer word in Pali for thirst. I am discontent here and my mouth is dry and I can't actually solve my happiness here. It is only water that can, that can meet this discontent and I don't have it. So there is, contentment is not possible here, it is elsewhere. That is tanha. And you can practice to a place where I can be content with the way things are, and yet still it's better for me and others if we productively change our circumstances. But nowhere in there do I actually have to be broken from my contentment. So rather than having contentment and pleasure chained and unhappiness and unpleasure, displeasure chained, you unchained them. So you have a contentment that's very intimate with the world, motivated by compassion and vision and possibilities and generosity, but the contentment is never at risk. The contentment isn't gambled for the outcome. The contentment's the contentment. So I have this big bowl of contentment, really secure. What do we want to do, folks? And it's like, well, let's sit for a while. Okay, now we're getting hungry. Okay, does everybody have enough to eat? That sounds like good. You know, we can share food. Why does my contentment have to enter the equation and then become precariously involved? That's where we know we're, we're enchanted or confused because I start thinking my contentment 
is out here. One exercise I do with a lot of people is give them a smaller bell <laughs> and say, now, imagine your happiness is far away and you have to strategize to bring it close to you. That's how most of us, our minds get enchanted that my happiness is far away and then I have to step into the whole game of how do I bring that contentment and happiness inside of me. And it's very different, especially the people meditate, where you actually can sit down and find your contentment here and now. I'm content. My shoulder's a little bit in pain. I'm content. Okay, so I actually have contentment. Now, how do I want to participate in the world? Well, a lot of my plans actually just went up in smoke because they were based in discontent. But now that I am content, what do I want to do? Oh, now that I am content, I actually don't just want to sit here like a bump on a log. I could. But now that I'm content and I feel the world and fall in love with the world, I want to help. It's a natural kind of growing out of the free heart and mind. But then it's not chasing its contentment. It's already content. But content doesn't make you a couch potato. Contentment actually frees you up to feel the world. And then I'm not manipulating you for my contentment. My contentment's already given. So then when I relate to you, it's more out of how can I help? What would be fun? What do you need? What would help you find your contentment? And so I don't have to manipulate you at all for my contentment. My contentment is well established. And what we don't believe in this culture, we have no messaging that you can be content. Why would you go shopping <laughs> for the amount of things we have to buy to create our capitalist culture if we weren't actually taught how discontent we are, how lacking we are? Um, my teeth could be that white. My car could that, be that shiny. I could have all the things blaring at me, and I don't. And I thought I was actually having a good day until I saw the advertising. <laughs> and then compared to that, I'm suffering. So now I've got to do all the things to get all this enchantment. And yet if you get it, my, my brother really teases me because one time I bought a ring that I saw well advertised on television. And I, and I saved up for it. I actually bought it. And when I came and <laughs> put it on, I was like, it's so dissatisfying. But the guy... The, the guys who were wearing it on TV, they looked really content. They looked really happy. And I kind of thought like, oh, if I got that, I should be able to have that. That's what they promised me. And it wasn't that expensive. And I was like, oh, wow, that's you know, a good way to get happy. But I thought, you know, I was like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I put this ring on and it's just a ring. It doesn't actually bring, it doesn't make me actually happy. It did for a moment, but then it kind of faded. Well, what else do I need? Oh, I see, it's over here, it's over there, it's over there. So we're chasing our contentment. In practice, it's a radical act to be content with one breath. You're subversive if you can learn to be content with your heartbeat. You know, well, the world would fall apart if everybody was just, you know. That's not true. You're content with your breath, you're content. That allows you to then feel the world and see the world. And then out of love for the world, you participate. That's, there's so much energy that's possible 
when you actually have your contentment. But tanha comes in and it begins to enchant you that your, con- your contentment is actually outside of you and then for you have to chase it. That help with your question? <laughs> a stage where my contentment is not 100% 24-7. So contentment comes. It comes in varied degrees, sometimes 100%, and it goes. Hmm. And so here I am interacting with the world, and I start something, maybe with deep contentment and a sense of compassion and generosity. And then I see myself touched by discontentment and craving, perhaps clinging, but I'm not very clear of how to distinct, uh, distinguish right. between craving and clinging. Right. So in practice, I'm, I'm trying to be aware of how that is working through me, but I'm not 100% sure of what tools I need to be using to be even more aware of this, of what's happening. Right. So with uh, all of these... The first tool, if you can, is non-intervention. Because if you intervene, if you intervene too quickly, chances are you're chasing something else. So the first thing you do is you become mindful of what has already arisen. And if you can watch it in play, the very root cause of this all is not seeing it clearly. So one of the greatest medicines is actually seeing it clearly. To see it clearly, you have to be able to calm it down or you're just too lost. But then you actually watch it. You watch it happen. And that's that watching that ends up liberating. You want to wake up from within the system to break the enchantment. I did this one when I was first... um, uh, first doing the practice, <clears throat> and again, I was um, single and looking for a relationship. And I noticed I'd be sitting, like, yeah, I'm actually happy and content. I don't need to be in a relationship. And I'd be at a park or something like that. And I look up, like, oh, but with that person, they have a dog. It looks like so much fun. And <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, like, us being great. And it's like, oh, now I'm not as content. I'm actually, like, my contentment is now very complicatedly wrapped up in this other person. And I would put my eyes down again and, like, Nope, actually, I'm, I'm pretty content here. And then looking up, I was like, nope, it's out there. Like, nope, it's here. Nope, it's out there. Like, nope, it's here. And I would watch myself buy into the dream, watch my mind like take up this vision and then live within that vision, get within the enchantment, and then play by the rules of the enchantment. So somewhere, you're, somewhere along the way, you're getting drawn into an enchantment And some of the most sophisticated enchantments are spiritual enchantments because it feels like you're buying into the right dream. It feels like you're buying into the right self worth chasing. I want to become that. I I crave what that looks like outside of me. So buying into that, then you start chasing that. And you suffer over getting it, not getting it. So somewhere, 
between the contentment you have here and the lack of contentment you have over there, there's a buying in. There's a buying into a view. And so you try to feel that I'm now in a, I'm now in a world where I can't imagine this could be enough. This is enough as it is. There's something external that has to come or there's something internal that has to leave, but I can't actually access this contentment given the way things actually are. And, that, and as you get stronger, there are fewer and fewer things that shake you from that contentment. So, what is the role of passion in this? Passion plus delusion is suffering. (laughs) Passion plus clarity is motivation. So as your mind and heart become clearer, the passions that pass through it will taste more like service and kindness and aspiration And there's a transformation, pro- there's a transformational process that happens. And we don't just, it's not you're all lost or you're all awake. We are in the process of waking up. And our passions begin to fuel us towards the positive. And we begin to see how certain passions combined with certain misunderstandings led to a lot of suffering. If you can't calm a passion down, temporarily, chances are it's part of your big life mission or there's something feeding it. So you have to explore, like, why am I so compelled to this? Is there a clinging behind this passion? Or is it just my heart really is feeling generous here? I've had certain passions take me over and they've been beautiful. And there's sort of like, so I'm, I, I think passions are beautiful, but you have to have an open-handed relationship to them versus a tight one. The difference between craving and clinging are like taking two strong magnets and they're not interacting with each other. Get them close enough and they start to pull on each other. That's the craving. Pull them far apart enough, they're independent. Doesn't, the magnet doesn't care about this magnet. You put them close together and they suddenly really want to be together and they're pulling and the yearning to be together is strong, yet it's still, you could separate them. And at some point they pull together and they click when they click, it's very hard suddenly to pull them apart because of the inverse relationship to their radius between them. <laughs> but <laughs> once they click, it's, you have to get, it's hard to get them apart. So a mind that has gone into upadana, the mind that has gone into clinging, grasping, is very hard to unseparate. So you want to work with things while you're in this discontent-seeking mode before you get rigid. Wherever you've gotten rigid, when change comes, it will challenge the rigidity and the mind's trying to find happiness. So it's gotten rigid around its happiness. Then things begin to change because they're impermanent and it hurts the gripping in the mind. The mind doesn't even know it's suffering until change begins to happen in the system where there's gripping. And then the inflexibility and the discapacity of the mind to change is felt like that internal turmoil. 
And usually people try to double down on their clinging so that they can hold on to it rather than learning, I have a gripping here, I need to actually become more adaptable and let go. That's where all the solving comes from. I, I cling, I want, I grip. And now I see the world is full of enemies and allies around my gripping, so I've got to actually concoct whole patterns of being to preserve this gripping. It's a whole other, it's a secondary strategy around trying to preserve your tightness, this fortification around your happiness. This is where we start building self structures. On the head, right behind you. So it's uh, a follow-up to that's where we start building self-structures. And one of the things that's so powerful about the pendant origination is that I feel like it's a wonderful explanation to the no-self. The right. idea that you know all of the conditions that arise at a particular moment create the arising of the self in every moment. And I would just like you to comment about that because it seems to be a very difficult concept for many people understand this no-self and the idea yeah. that the self arises in each moment. So, <clears throat> um, using let's, let's use this particular model, the, the material scientific model. Um, I have about a trillion cells in this body, give or take. Mm -hmm. a trillion cells. Part of those cells is a nervous system. That seems to be where the aliveness is experienced within the active nervous system. Experienced by who? Well, actually experienced by the nervous system itself. My nervous system is experiencing itself. One of the ways that it does that is it generates an egoic experience of itself. So what's felt by me is that I'm actually receiving visual experience from you all. I'm receiving auditory experience and bodily experience, and it's coming to someone I would call Temple. Temple thinks about it, and then Temple responds. Temple is actually generated by the underlying system. There is no Temple independent of this system. Temple is produced by the system. Temple is produced as a really good psychological strategy to give coherence to this physicality. If Temple doesn't have a really good internal experience of himself, it's confusing. And I've gone through experiences where he hasn't worked out so well. <laughs> so it's good when this system produces a, a, a felt sense that there's somebody there to which the experience is happening to. But it's a misperception to think that I've actually produced something concrete, something that does not change, something that's not born out of the experience. So you are born out of the experience, but you're not born and then floating above it. You keep being born out of the system. You are produced by this system. This system is constantly changing, so this system keeps producing a concurrent sense of you. And if you're willing to have that be true versus, no, 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 I actually exist, rather than saying that, it's like, okay, and you are very changeable. 
the you is very dependent upon the hormones going through you, the emotions going through you, the, the, t the way your body is, the way your, your mind is, affects your sense of yourself. If you make mistakes and you take them seriously, then you remember them. That influences over how you self-assess yourself. If you're not actually producing something solid and out of the system, this egoic sense of ourselves is produced by the system to help govern the system, but it's not independent of the system. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it, that, that could just be a whole strategy to just like neutralize the question, like, oh my God. <laughs> so <clears throat> the felt sense that we have, uh, anatta, it's not that there's no self, it's just there's no lasting self. And the self that you have is as variable and changeable as the underlying body that you're in. So this body is always changing, yet I roughly recognize it every day. So it's not unchanging, therefore I get to recognize it. It's definitely changing, but there's enough coherence to the body that I roughly identify myself day by day. When I broke my wrist and it swelled up, that was not my body. I was like, I've looked at that wrist for 46 years, and now I hardly recognize that as my wrist. Is that somebody else's wrist? No, it's just, it changed so dramatically that I had a hard time relating to it as mine. It was just like, that's so weird. But the weirdness was that I've just never seen those dimensions on this wrist, and then it went back to something that was more familiar, and so comes the ease of that. The same is true of this felt sense of self, it's constantly changing. And that's really unnerving until you realize, well, it's always been that way. It's always been that way and it's worked out well enough. This self that you have is just, this system produces an egoic layer of itself to help roughly keep its narrative in, in, um, organized. I know where my keys are, I know where my clothes are. Life is good. I, I understand how to kind of work my egoic layer of life, but I don't rigidify that for security. If I do, then I will suffer as that changes, and I will definitely suffer as that ages and dies. But if I know that that's actually produced out of the system, then as the system changes and the wisdom keeps up with it, it's like, yeah, this is just what happens. It's the natural part of this body to age and die. It's the natural part of the self that was produced by it to undergo changes as well. Let's see if there's someone who hasn't asked a question yet. Let's, uh, let's do one more. I'm going to do a tiny bit more here. We're not going to get through all 12 before lunch, but just enough kind of get a sense of how this part works. Then we'll take a break for lunch and come back and go deeper. But let's just one more question. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how um, aversion fits into this. Because yeah. sometimes craving and aversion are kind of spoken of almost interchangeably. And is that basically how we should see it is aversion is basically a craving for things to be different. And we... Yeah. So then I don't quite under, always understand. Because I tend to be more of an aversive personality. Yeah. And I... 
I don't quite understand how clinging, like with the magnets, because it really does feel like the other way the magnets push away. I can feel that way about the world a lot. Yeah. So where does the clinging part happen? The clinging comes where you say <clears throat> your mind stiffens against something. So I dislike this, I'm uncomfortable with this. This has to change. There's no way I can be happy if this does not change. So the mosquitoes in the room, you want to sleep, it's bothering you, it's bothering you, and it's like it has to die. There's I cannot imagine <laughs> getting a good night's sleep with this mosquito in the room. You know, that's a small example. Or anything else happens in the world and you struggle with it, it's unpleasant, you're struggling, and then you give up on the struggle and you just either collapse in it or you just tighten and say, no way. There's no way this gets to be this way. Reality cannot be like this. And you <clears throat> brace yourself against reality and, and you try to find security in pushing against reality versus pulling on it. <clears throat> and when that goes from something mobile to something fixated, you've gone into the upadana. Then when you <clears throat> crave or cling, I mean when you aversively rigidify, then you build all these self stories and trajectories around solidifying that there's no way this is going to work. I have to choose a different job. I have to do something different. I get to yell at this person. This person gets to be any, anything I want because that's, all these dramas are born because of the rigidified intolerance. Thank you. So it's more like rejection and annihilation. Um, like clinging is more like rejection or annihilation. That's what I'm thinking. <clears throat> the stage of upadana here <clears throat> is where the mind um, goes from uh, hot wax to cold wax. It just takes a form. And it, and it takes that form looking for security. So I, I look for security. There's no way I could ever like my neighbor. They've insulted me. Therefore, I'm willing to hate them for decades because it's just I want to have this solidified opinion. I don't want to have one more conversation with them. It's just over. And it just becomes rigid. Like, oh, it feels good. I have this wall between me and this annoying person. I feel safe behind it. I have to keep building it and keep suffering in it, but at least it's no longer dynamic. It's just rigid. Um, it's just rigid. <clears throat> then to keep it rigid, I have to kind of build stories around it. So we'll have more time to talk about this uh, after lunch, but I want to go into the next couple of stages. You, <clears throat> tanha doesn't come from anywhere. It comes because of Vedana. And Vedana is whether an experience has the flavor of, of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If you can just leave it there, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, you don't have to go into the dramas that it can produce. But because an active nervous system produces feedback on an experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we crave it, we fear it, we become averse to it. So uh, steps eight on up happen because of this Vedana quality. And Vedana doesn't just happen, it's not beamed in from Mars. Vedana grows out of 
contact. So because we're constantly having contact with the world, we're constantly having Vedana. Whether we're liberated, not liberated, constantly having contact, therefore we're constantly having Vedana. But the whole suffering that starts afterwards comes when we can't tolerate the Vedana we're having in this model. And we're having less contact because we're having an active nervous system. Because we have an ear that works, we have contact with sound, therefore we have Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sounds, therefore we crave or reject sounds. Because we have an active eye, an active nose, an active tongue, an active body, and then an active mind experiencing the world mentally, thoughts, memories, plans, those are also contact. They're also pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and they also kick off reactivity. Dependent origination from here on up is doable in daily life. You may not always, it can happen so fast that you crave something, you cling to it, and already a story leaps into motion. So these might be very fast, might be cultivated over time, but because we have six ways of interacting with our world, and because those get nuanced with being pleasant or experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, If we're not mindful or wise there, that will feed our reactivity. Our reactivity feeds the ways that we plan our future and we live into those plans built upon reactivity. A lot of the practice that we do is to bring our attention right to the direct experience, calming down a lot of the dramas and seeing, oh wait, there is contentment here. I don't actually have to be so craving of things elsewhere. I actually taste what's happening as I eat my food. I actually hear what's happening. I'm sure it hasn't been pleasant to sit next to the projector with its whirring of its fan. Not a first choice for many, but you don't have to suffer over it. It's just unpleasant sound at the ear door. After a while, it even loses unpleasantness. It's just sound at the ear door. I don't have to like, why did they come? I should have sat elsewhere. How come I had to sit next to it? That's dependent origination in reactivity over unpleasant sound. (coughs) This gets heavily driven over unpleasant experiences, heavily driven over pleasant experiences. And we tend not to waste our time with neutral experiences because they don't have much um, currency in this strategy for happiness. So we tend to go, we tend to check out where it's neutral we tend, to ch- we tend to chase where it's pleasant. We tend to reject where it's unpleasant. And then we get caught. Now, where this all grows out, we'll talk about after lunch. But this much alone of dependent origination, you can already see the workings of this. You can already work with these steps and see how one preceding link sets the ground for the next one. And that one sets the ground for the next one. That one sets the ground for the next one. A big one to intercede upon is between contact and whether it's pleasant. Just letting that be. Contact unpleasant, letting that be, and not necessarily following it up with a lot of reactivity. (coughs) So we've gotten, this is the mosquito to malaria part. (laughs) We're going to get into the swampy waters um, after lunch and how to liberate ourselves there. 
So before we go to uh, lunch, um, we have a few announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.